0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com Hello and
2: welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today, we have a special guest. We're talking to Jessa Crispin, who's an author, blogger, and really just a book lover extraordinaire. She just wrote a new book, The Dead Ladies Project, Exiles, Expat, and Ex-Countries, which is being published this month. But you also might know her if you're just a book nerd like we are. Uh, she's the founding editor of Bookslut, which is a book review site and blog with a super devoted following. And Spolia, which is a literary e-magazine that features
3: writers that she said were left out of the larger conversation. Now, Caroline, you've been really excited to talk to Jessa, Mm -hmm. and you were also really excited to hear about the Dead Ladies Project and to read it. So talk to me a little bit about what grabbed your attention so much about this whole literary project and, and journey she went on. Well, I think, I can't remember
2: now. I remember, like, grabbing your arm and being like, Kristen, we have to interview her. Um, With that mom grab? Yeah, the total mom. Like, it was just a mom arm, as if you were about to walk into traffic. Kristen! Um No, I think I saw a tweet or something of a review, an early review of her book. And I thought, oh, this is totally right in the Sminty wheelhouse, because we've talked about lady explorers and women who've traveled and explored the globe on the podcast before. We had that whole uh, summer series on lady explorers a couple years ago. And you and I are also big-time book nerds who have talked a lot about other authors and genres, literary genres. And so here's this fascinating book nerd, Jessica Crispin, who has just written a book about her own journey. And so... Here she is going to Europe and not necessarily trying to find herself, but she's certainly combining
3: a lot of really interesting things that you and I love to talk about in one book. Well, it really reminded me, too, of our Marmorian Flocks podcast from a while back. And if that name isn't ringing a bell, listeners, it was a podcast we did about women sculptors, a lot of whom left the United States in the what late 19th and early 20th century, to make their art in Europe because it was more welcoming for women artists. And and it seems like in Crispin's book, you're introduced not only to similar artists, but also writers and women whom you might not know about necessarily. They aren't like right in the canon. Yeah, which sort of echoes Crispin's purpose for
2: starting her literary, her online literary magazine. It's to sort of bring attention to those lesser-known voices who, even if they didn't themselves necessarily make big waves in the literary world or the art world... Um, there's still fascinating figures to read about. People like James Joyce's beleaguered wife Nora Barnacle, which of course her name to me just sounds like it's straight out of fiction itself. Um, Or the ever supportive Isabel Burton, who's the wife of intrepid explorer Richard Francis Burton. And so she really
3: focuses on a range of women's experiences abroad. Yeah, and it seems like she doesn't fall in love with every woman, especially that she runs across. So for instance, Jean Reese is someone she talks about. Uh, Reese is an author whom Crispin describes as being trapped in a repulsive brand of helpless femininity, a little damsel in distress going on. Yeah, and and Crispin does get into
2: her distaste for Reese, but it sounded to me like this was one of the only surprises that Crispin encountered on her trip in terms of, hey, I'm going to go learn more about this writer um i'm going to, she's going to fit into my narrative really well and then it turns out like oh well actually she's sort of just trading on this helplessness and not quote unquote contributing and so that's a theme that crops up in in uh in the dead ladies project about women or or just people in general who don't contribute in a way that's meaningful.
3: Yeah, and even though it is called the Dead Ladies Project, as you said, it's not only women she talks about. Uh, during her first stop in Berlin, she introduces us to philosopher William James. Then we later meet Stravinsky in Switzerland, of all places. That's right. And not in just an orchestra pit somewhere.
2: <laughs> that's right. He's out in the wild. We also meet uh W. Somerset Maugham, who she calls the bard of the toxic relationship also- So my (laughs) (laughs) ex-boyfriend. Yeah, and he is in St. Petersburg. And I mean, there's all sorts of characters. She also introduces us to Claude Cahoon, uh, a Jewish lesbian artist who used very subversive sort of individual level tactics to fight the Nazis in her own
3: way. So what especially stood out to you about Crispin and the Dead Ladies Project? Well, and I say this in in the interview with her,
2: but it sort of struck me as the anti-eat, pray, love, uh, in that while she does travel alone and she does get introspective, she doesn't really seem like she's on this journey of personal enrichment. She doesn't quote unquote get the guy and she doesn't make another country's culture about her own personal growth. What she does do is immerse herself in the cities that she visits across Europe. She gets drunk a lot. She makes mistakes. She learns a lot and follows in the footsteps of other artists, some more famous than others who came before. And I did like that. Like we said, a lot of these people that she talks about are sort of underdogs. They're not the big names of, of music and art and literature, but they're fascinating
3: in their own right and deserve the attention that she's giving them. Well, Caroline, I'm so glad that you talked to Jessa Crispin about her book. And is it time now for us to share your conversation with our listeners? Let's do it. So, hi, Jessa. Thank you
2: so much for joining us today. We're very excited to talk to you. And I was hoping that to get started, I could just have you introduce yourself to our book lover listeners. So who are you and
4: what do you do? (laughs) Um, my name is Jessica Crispin. I am the editor and founder of um, two literary magazines, Slut and Spolia, um, and now I have written a book called The Dead Ladies Project that is coming out with the University of Chicago Press. I guess I guess that's who I am.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved your book. It was an incredible read. I thought it was a great combination of. Travel and history and it was sort of, if you don't mind me saying, I thought it was sort of the anti-eat, pray, love. It was an awesome journey and an interesting look at introspection and growth, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't saccharine. It was, it was a really great read. Um, and so before we jump into talking about the book though, um, I was wondering if we could talk about the book review site and blog Bookslut that you mentioned. Um, I think it's pretty amazing that in your early twenties, you created a professionally self-sustaining blog brand within such a who's who kind of industry. So, how did that site and its name come to be? And why do you think it struck such a chord with so many readers?
4: Um, yeah, it started when I was 23. And all of it, from the name to its entire existence, was essentially an accident, I guess I would say. Um, it really only started because um, I had a day job where I was sitting in front of a computer, and I didn't have enough work to do. And so I fooled around on the internet. It's, you know, the great tradition of day jobs. They give you an internet connection. I don't know what they expect you to do. Um, and so I started a blog. Um, and that was actually because my then boyfriend had a blog, and I thought it was really boring, and I was like, I can do this better than you. And so I did. Um and the blog uh so it was blog first like daily and then people started reading it and i still don't know how that happened um so then i got really self-conscious and i thought well i should actually put some effort into it so i asked other people to contribute and that's how it kind of turned into the book review site um as for how why I, i don't know i mean it's as far as why it has an audience, why it still has an audience, I, I honestly don't know, and I never really understood that part <laughs> of it. Um, but I'm grateful. I'm eternally grateful. If I'd, I feel like if I tried to make it work, you know, if I tried to like, think about how to create a business and do it, I think it would have been a total failure. Um, I think just by kind of doing whatever I felt like doing, for some reason that came off as more genuine Mm -hmm. than a lot of kind of professionalized sites. And I think that's, I think that might be part of it.
2: Yeah. I was going to say, it seems like that genuineness really helps readers connect and it's almost more accessible. Not that you can't just pull up a New York times book review on the internet, but it does seem in that way that it's almost more accessible. And it's like, like one of your friends is writing a book review. Um, but that leads me, speaking of books, this whole conversation is about books. But for the Dead Ladies Project, you traveled around Europe for a year and a half. And so you ended up ditching most of your earthly belongings in Chicago, and you headed off to Berlin and then to Trieste, to Galway, Sarajevo, the south of France, Lausanne, St. Petersburg, and Zakynthos. But uh, what sparked your solo journey and what kept you going once you had set out? What kept you going? going in the face of travel anxiety and fatigue?
4: Um, It really started because, um, well, I moved to Berlin, um, and I moved to Berlin before years before I had the idea for the book it was it was a personal decision that I made and I really yeah I got rid of everything I got down to two suitcases and showed up in Berlin and was like hey hey I don't speak your language please don't <laughs> please don't let me die on the street and then you're just in Europe right and I'd done a lot of traveling before but I'd never actually just been in a place where you can just get on a train and then get off the train and you're in a Whole other country it, that had never been a part of my reality, and it became really hard to get me to, in Berlin. It became really hard to like um, make myself be in my apartment. I just left all the time. Just, just as soon as I had, you know, the thirty euro to get a train ticket, I just left. Um, so that it just became a really sort of natural part of my life. Where I became kind of used to be having this kind of um, unpredictable, I guess, uh, uh, situation, and then um, and then I had the idea for the book, um, and so then the travel became structured. So then it became like, okay, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this and this and this, and I had an itinerary. And I had the people in mind that I wanted to write about. So then the travel became much more focused. But then I just like, I gave up my apartment, put everything in storage and, you know, went out with my one suitcase. It was, it was a little, um, now looking back, I don't know how I did that. It's just, Oh yeah, this is what's going to happen. I'm just going to give up my apartment and live out of one suitcase for a year and a half. That makes total sense. Um, but, uh, I enjoyed it at the time. I didn't really have travel fatigue. Mm -hmm. It didn't, and maybe it was because I didn't have anywhere to go back to. I mean, I got sad sometimes. I got lonely sometimes. Sometimes it was really hard, but I never had the idea of like, screw it. I don't want to do this anymore. I just was like, well, we'll just go to the next place. Maybe it'll be different in the next place.
2: Yeah. So, did you find that traveling alone was better than having traveled with a partner? Did you get something out of that that was perhaps different than traveling with
0: someone else?
4: I've done very limited travel with other people um, and only really with romantic partners. I've never traveled with a friend or anything like that, but I find that it's an incredibly different experience Mm -hmm. when you're traveling with somebody else. When you're traveling with someone else, you're like paying half of your attention to this other person. You're more inward. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of even more aware of yourself, I guess, as you're interacting intimately. You're having conversations. You're kind of experiencing things with another person. So there's this kind of reflection going on. Whereas when you're traveling by yourself, then you don't have anything. You become much more open. You become much more um, vulnerable in good ways and in bad ways.
1: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get started today at betterhelp.com slash momstuff. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash momstuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks everywhere, and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice... Now are our eyes.
0: Arches and Halos is our favorite brow products that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have professional quality products
1: at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use Arches and Halos because of how well done the
0: formulas are, and they are half the price of department store brands.
1: Arches and Halos Professional Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you. In each city that you visited, you you sort of basically follow in the
2: footsteps of a famous artist who came before. So I was wondering if you could introduce our listeners to the people that you wrote about and maybe speak a little bit about why you chose those specific figures.
4: Uh, sure. There was William James in Berlin. Um, And it was two wives in Trieste, Nora Barnacle, who was uh, the wife of James Joyce, and Isabel Burton, who was the wife of uh, Richard Francis Burton. Um, There was Rebecca West in Sarajevo. Uh, oh man, I'm gonna forget somebody, and this is gonna be really painful. Uh, there was Stravinsky in Lausanne. There was W. Somerset Maugham in Russia. There was Margaret Anderson in the South of France. Maud Gunn in Galway. Jean Reese in London, and Claude Cahoon in Jersey Island. Yeah, I got them all. I totally
3: left out
2: London when I introduced your city <laughs> list. Gah. <laughs> well yeah so so, what did these people have in common or or did they and and why did you pick these figures?
4: um Each person was picked because of some sort of some sort of metaphor or some sort of entryway i mean if if you kind of list out the the people who are uh sort of famous expats, there are much more famous people than the ones that I picked, like Hemingway would be a really obvious example in paris um but I, w- I needed some sort of entry as far as there had to be a link between um, the person and the place and then my experience at that place. So like William James in Berlin, um, he's one of my favorite philosophers. He's someone that I've um, read uh, extensively. Um, but he moved to Berlin before he became a philosopher when he was still in this phase of like failing to really become anybody. And um that's basically how I showed up in Berlin, as somebody who had really failed to be a person. Um, and so I connected with that. And that also connected to Berlin, which is a city that is, you know, like one a German I, um, I met described Berlin as the festering wound of Germany. Like it's just, it's like this weird out of time place that kind of doesn't really have anything to do with the country that holds it. Um and uh so the other Germans are like, we don't I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know what this is. Berlin, you know. Um and so that seemed like a, a nice connection. And then there were others as well, like I was very interested in somebody like um Maud Gunn, um, who really has not been written about enough. Um if anybody knows about her, it's because she was Muse. Of Yates, but she's much more interesting person than Yates, and she um, sold her soul to the devil when she was a teenage girl, Um, and she was a practicing black magician, and she resurrected her dead son, and uh, she was uh, she was a gun runner during the Irish Revolution. She was a serious babe, and um, just to kind of like be able to spend time with her was kind of incredible.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I found that I was fascinated by the women that you talked about and the details that you shared. And it seems like a lot of them had that almost underdog quality or that unappreciated quality. And did that sort of attract you? Did that play any part in your attraction to them?
4: I think that I've always been drawn to the more obscure. And I think it's just because... um, I guess if you kind of feel like you're on the sidelines of life, like if you're not, if you're not killing it, if you're not um, sort of celebrated and amazing and popular and wealthy, and like people aren't sort of you know shouting your name in crowds, um, that and you're kind of stuck on the margins and you feel like a you know social reject, then you maybe have more in common with social rejects, um, and so you feel drawn to their company. And I think that's, that was kind of it was, I was in a place where I felt really lost. Um, And while these women were interesting, they didn't, most of them didn't have grand fame. Mm -hmm. And that was part of it was like, okay, well, maybe this is just my life. How do I feel okay with it? How do I not descend into disappointment and bitterness? Um, And that was, uh, that was an important part of this trip as well. Well,
2: did your did your journey or your deeper look into these people's lives, did that change how you saw any of them? Or was that all pretty well established before you set out to follow in their footsteps and write the book?
4: Um, some, I ha- some I found much more respect for than I had before. There was only one person, and that was the writer, Jean Reese in London, that I just felt like I thought I was going to write, you know, this sort of adoring thing. And I realized as I was researching her more and more that I really hated her. Like I really started to think of her as like my enemy. (laughs) Um, So that was really surprising to me. And it was also really surprising to me because I hated London I've been to London several times. I've always hated it, and then this time I fell in love with the city. So it was like this weird mixed match. It was um, it was it was a big surprise that one.
2: Well, I'm interested to talk about Jean Reese and and your opinion of her because it seems like that as you your understanding of her unfolds, you went from being it, as I read it, you went from being sort of excited to to learn more about her and kind of trace her path to almost being like. Jeez, What are you doing trading on your helpless femininity?
4: Yeah, come on, lady. Pull it together. Um, yeah, I mean, she just used everyone around her. And as her excuse, she used, you know, uh, oh, I'm so helpless. I'm just such a, like, little wounded bird. I can't, I don't even have the strength to raise my head to eat. You have <laughs> to, like, put the food in my mouth. Um, it, and I, I, I find that... Repulsive, like I really do. Um, and I, there was that quality in her novels of being kind of um, helpless, of being just in a bad way uh, and vulnerable. But in the biography, it makes it clear like this was a self sustaining thing, like it was a ploy. So in the novels, it's bad luck, bad circumstances, whatever, you know, like. The state of women in society, but in her biography, she had opportunities and she didn't take them, and she because she really preferred to take stuff from other people, like it, it like in this kind of vampiric kind of way. Um, yeah, and I just ended up really disliking her um, so much.
2: <laughs> did did she herself have bad luck and bad experiences that she traded on, or were those just was her self pity or helplessness just sort of funneled into her characters?
4: Well, she came from money, and she came from like a colonial family. Um, so um, she—it wasn't like her situation was dire. Um, you know, it, it's that it's that British thing, that um, Edwardian British thing of the the cold father and the mother who doesn't give. A um, and so that was part, I guess, part of the problem. But at the same time. She, um, no, she just seemed to prefer it. She, she needed a lot of attention. She was a failed actress. Um, and so when she couldn't get the attention that way of being on stage, she just, you know, took it from men. Um, Mm -hmm. she, she, you know, preferred to have, she could have made a living. She preferred to take men's money. She could have, you know.
2: Whatever. Yeah. Well, beyond Jean Rhys, you do write about your strong aversion to that helpless, passive woman, um, whether that is <laughs> figures in literature, actual artists or just women that maybe you encountered while you were traveling. And so what is so repulsive about that figure? And have you encountered her in your life often?
4: Um, yeah, I've encountered her a couple times. Um I think it's just that thing of you have, I believe strongly that one, one, one should contribute. And that doesn't, I mean, I don't necessarily mean that in the Protestant way of like, you should work, like everybody should work. I don't think that that's necessarily true, but I think that you should at least give into the world as much as you're taking. And I also think that. Women use this in this particularly, and I'm totally generalizing right now, but some women use this as a way to get ahead so that they don't actually have to contribute so they can just take from men so they can just sort of be parasites on men or on, you know, other women. So that they don't have to be responsible for themselves. And, um, yeah, and I've had friends like that. I've had, you know, where you think you're kind of hanging out and, you know, she just takes a little bit and then takes a little bit more and then sees what she can get away with. Um, and, And I've had male friends who have had that as their girlfriends and their wives. And, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the woman who, you know, when the guy tries to break up with her, you know, fakes a suicide attempt or something like that. And those women do exist. Um, and they're kind of played up as cliches, but they do actually, they do actually exist in some forms. And Jean Rees, yeah, did the suicide, fake suicide thing, uh, like, a lot. <laughs> really? A lot? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going out the window. If you don't love me anymore, I'm going out the window. And then, he, you know, she'd get on the sill, and he would, like, have to pull her back into the room. You know, like, she did a lot. It was, um, yeah, she needed a lot of attention.
2: <laughs> and we'll hear more from Jessica Crispin right after a quick break.
0: This year is the 25th anniversary
1: of Catan. Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code MOM at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise.
0: This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness.
1: Yes, and right now that is more important than ever especially when we're all apart. So recently I had a group and we had a a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we, we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun.
0: Yeah, and I'm, with the disposable products, I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers and traditional or now not.
1: And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering, or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. China products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup. <laughs>
2: You point out a few times throughout the book uh, the ideas about what supposedly creates an interesting, strong, creative person, like William James having an awful dad or Somerset Mom living closeted with a terrible wife. But as William James sort of finally seems to wake up and shake off his dad's influence, he writes, my first act of free will shall be to believe in free will. And so I was wondering, as I read, did you yourself have to reject anybody's sway over your life as you traveled or as you wrote?
4: Yeah. Yes, um, <laughs> well, my entire family. Um, yeah. Um, but also just, I think that I had, when I started, um, I had a lot of, and I still do married friends and friends, you know, who own property and have kids and are married and that's their priority is keeping like a safe space. Um, and my priority is the opposite of that. <laughs> and you, and there's, like, these little undermining things that people say that they don't mean it as such, but, you know, they're not thinking about it. Of just like, well, what, what, why would you do that? Like, don't you ever get tired? Don't you ever get lonely? It's like, well, yeah, don't you ever get tired? <laughs> don't you ever get lonely? It's, not, it's nothing to do with being on the road. Um, and so, yeah, and those voices are important to shut out. Um, and also just... You know, I, have worked in publishing now or adjacent to publishing for 13, 14 years now. Um, and there are certain rules that you're supposed to obey. Um, mostly these rules are created by men as far as like what you're supposed to write. Um, and so when I, I was with the book, there were a lot of conversations where like, this is, this is not, this is not a book. this is is too complicated, you're doing too much, it won't sell, no one's going to read it, you should just write a memoir or something and you should go into an MFA program but uh, yeah so there's just the act of writing the book was an act of defiance because a lot of people told me this is not a book I was like, I'll show you what a book is
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean I think it's worked out (laughs) I couldn't put it down so, well there's one voice (laughs) So you seem, I mean, you seem like a very confident traveler. I know that seems like a silly thing to say, but I think part of the confidence is brushing off people's constant commentary of, but aren't you lonely? And and I was thinking of this as you were writing about Richard Francis Burton and Isabel Burton because uh, you say, but where is my Isabel, I wonder, to follow with the luggage and be a companion in foreign lands? Maybe, a tiny voice whispers, she'll show up when you finally admit to being Richard Francis Burton and i thought that was fantastic and so had you already sort of been accepting and comfortable in your status as a capable and independent traveler did you want an isabel or were you like to hell with it all i'm hitting the road and i feel great
4: um i it wasn't really until i went um while I was in Trieste, I went to Rome, and I went with um, my lover at the time, and that's when I realized, oh, this is different. This is a really different way of being in the world, and it made me not like it so much anymore. Or it made me, you know, when when you've been traveling for a long time, and you and you do get to that point where you're just desperate not to introduce yourself to somebody, not to go through those, those, you know, baseline biographical details again. Um, you know, that happened in the first conversation, you just want somebody to understand you and know you and like, know when you make this face, it means you want a grilled cheese sandwich, you know, like just that kind of level of understanding. And so I had been longing for that. Um, or I would, but then I actually went on a trip with somebody else and then I was like, oh, this is not, this is not what I do. And it's nice. You see Rome and Rome is a good place to do it because it's Rome and you know, it's romantic and it's beautiful and there's, you know, a lot of stuff going on. Um, but I, if like say, if he had come with me to like Sarajevo, that would have been a whole other experience. I, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like. So now I'm I'm much more okay with traveling by myself. Um, But sometimes you do get to that point of just like, I just want somebody else to carry my bag for like (laughs) five minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think it's an
2: issue or it's just a sentiment that comes up in a lot of situations. You know, we did an episode a while back on um, women conductors, for instance. And that is such, that's also a very intense, time-consuming, passion-consuming job. And there was one woman conductor we quoted who said, like, yeah, I would probably be even more successful if I had a housewife, too. And I I think it's the same, yeah, the same concept of of like, yeah. Sometimes it would be nice if somebody did carry my bag or like make a plane reservation.
4: It's also a corrupt desire to want somebody to make your life easier. Like it's, it you should be, and not that it's like we should all be, you know, pioneers out on our own, totally self, you know, like that that American myth of I don't need anybody. I'm, you know, but it is a corrupt desire, I think, to have somebody to want somebody to do things for you. That, um, um, that does the, the thing that doesn't come into play was like, what are you contributing to them? Like, what are you doing for them? Um, because I think that a lot of women sort of, um, at least women that I've talked to, um, are put in this place in relationships where their conscience is what they can contribute to their male partner. Um, and I guess men tend to think some men and I, 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 whatever. I'm, I always, I hate generalizing the men, women thing. Um, but sometimes it's just easier. Um, some men just think, Oh, well I'm around. So that's what I'm contributing to her. You know, like if you're not kind of actively, facilitating each other's existences, both of you, and you're not just like one person carrying the burden, um, then what are you doing? Isabel and Richard, I did envy that relationship because they did bring things to the table on equal levels. Like she, you know, he would come, he would go to the place first and set it up. She would follow with the luggage He knew the language, so he would do this sort of interaction. She would, uh, you know, um, make the place nice, hang out with the women, find out what the, you know, like the the situation on the ground is. And they were able to kind of, and, you know, there's no way that she in her time could have traveled as extensively as she did without him. Um, And so they did bring a lot to each other's lives. They made each other's lives better, both of them. Um, and that's something I have never had. Um, but it's also something I know that a lot of people in relationships don't have. And so it's not like sit around and, you know, I'm I'm not waiting for a man to make my life better. I can make my life better as it is.
2: Well, I'm definitely going to have to read more about Rebecca West. Now that I've read your book, she's a fascinating figure, but she's pretty controversial.
4: I mean, I have a lot of problems with Rebecca West, but at the, at the baseline, like, I can respect what she did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and her book on Yugoslavia is just one of those books that the world changed because it exists, you know, that, and that doesn't happen all that often, actually.
2: Well, and could you then, that kind of leads to my next question about being a traveler and a writer and a tourist and what does that all mean? But before we hit that, um Could you explain a little bit about who Rebecca West was, why she was an important figure with her writing, but also maybe what she did wrong with some of her writing?
4: Um, yeah, she was a super ambitious um, journalist and novelist and essayist, um, and her kind of magnum opus that I uh, deal with in the book is Black Lamb and Great Falcon. Um, so she went to Yugoslavia during the wars, or between the wars, World War One and World War II. And her desire to go there was because everybody was talking about this place, right? The, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand um, happened in Sarajevo, and that led to World War One, so everybody said. But nobody actually, nobody in the West who was blaming all of this uh, destruction on this little part of the world, had ever really been there, had ever paid attention to it, had any idea what the stresses were before um, the assassination happened, like why the assassination may have happened. Um, and so she went and to find out. And she really went to, you know, from door to door. She went to every part. She went to almost every major city and small cities, too. And she just talked to everybody to get a kind of, not just historical, but um, geographical and and, uh, artistic and ethnographic. It's really all-encompassing. It's like 1,200 pages. It's it's exhaustive. Um, But it's... um, It's something that um, we Westerners don't do enough. Like, we think we understand a place without actually knowing anything about it, you know? Um, And so I deeply respect her for um, going to the place and figuring it out. On the other hand, in the rest of her career, she was so ambitious that she, you know... um, was a little bit intellectually lazy she she wanted to um, make a name for herself desperately and when you want to make a name for yourself, there are things that you're willing to let go um and uh so yeah that was that was my primary problem with her that for as much as she produced and she produced like you know a dozen novels and all uh uh God knows how many actual words in journalism um It doesn't necessarily add up to much, except for the one book that remains.
2: Well, how do you strike that balance between travel writer and tourist, between uh, um, projecting things onto the people that you're encountering and the cultures that you're encountering? How do you how do you strike that balance of basically not uh, forcing your American writer viewpoint on someone else?
4: Oh, you're definitely going to do it. Like, there's no escape. There's um, It's really hard not to because even, you know, you can just ask questions and just write down what the person is saying, but you're going to ask the wrong questions because you're an American, right? Or not just because you're American, but because you're, you're an outsider. And because you're mostly fed and on news reports that are slanted because there are certain things we want to believe about certain places in order to make us feel like the atrocity and war and um, genocide and disaster couldn't happen to us. So we need to think that there's something different about those places. So as long as you understand the mechanism that's feeding a lot of the information that you're getting, then you can kind of see through some of it. But at the same time, there's no way to completely discard the way that you're intellectually raised. Like the information that you get, you can't see through it. Um, But you can listen. And that's, I think, the most important thing, um, is listening and allowing people to tell you when you're wrong. And I think that doesn't happen enough in travel writing.
2: Now, are you having having made that journey and written the book, have you come back to the States? Are you still in Europe? Where are you now?
4: Um, I'm temporarily back in the States. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I have a lot of mixed feelings about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was kind of an accident. It, it was like, I'm, I'm going to come to the States for a couple months. I'm going to see some friends. Um, I'm going to, you know, I don't know whatever, whatever the plan was. But then when I got here, and being around people who have known me for, you know, 20 years and uh, eating and drinking and have, it's like, oh, man, I, it was that was a moment I realized how lonely I had been. Mm-hmm. and I was like, if I get on a plane, like if I get on a plane, I'm just going to have a nervous breakdown. Like, I, I, don't, I just can't do it again right now. But now mm-hmm. I've been here a year and now I'm like, oh, God, I got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. So now I I'm restored and I'm thinking about leaving again. Yeah, is there a is
2: there a plan for where you want to head? Are you going to go back to Berlin or where do you, where are you thinking?
4: Oh no, definitely not Berlin. Um no, I haven't figured it out and as soon as I do that will be the moment where and when I go. So yeah. that's to be how it works.
2: Yeah. Do how have the people around you reacted to your travels beyond just saying, like, don't you get lonely? Have they found it weird that you're just willing to pick up and go?
4: Uh, No, I think, I mean, the people that I'm closest to know that this is not really a choice that I make, that if I stayed in one place, I would die. Like, I really (laughs) feel like I would be the lady who, if I bought a house, would die accidentally burn accidentally burn that house down. Like it would just be oh I don't know what happened. It just left like a candle on some sheets <laughs> near a gas can. I don't know how it happened. Yeah, we should so specify
2: we should specify that Jessa just used air quotes around accidentally.
4: Accidentally she and I are looking at each other
2: but you guys are listening to headphones though. So.
4: <laughs> um, yeah I, I could I could not I yeah. It wouldn't work for me. Well, um, and the people who I know know, that, know me best, they, they know that.
2: So it sounds like you absolutely feel compelled to travel and keep moving. And I was wondering whether writing and travel serve similar purposes for you.
4: Um, really, the writing helps me figure out what the travel is all about. Um, the travel is kind of overwhelming, and very sensual in the sense of like senses, you know, like you're seeing a lot, you're smelling a lot, you're feeling a lot. Um, and you're trying to like take information, um, and make it understandable. And so that's what the writing is. And there were things when I was writing the book that I was like, Oh, Oh, so that's what that was all about. And and so without the writing, the travel would just be like this big, overwhelming thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, the the writing helps me figure out um, how I even feel about the travel, essentially.
2: Are you working on any other writing projects now?
4: I am always. Uh, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Um, well, I have a, a book about the tarot because that's my day job uh, I read tarot cards um, that's coming out in February and I'm working on a manifesto uh, for Melville House so I have a lot going on
2: <laughs> yeah I know I was considering like maybe we should do a two-parter interview with her and part two is that she's reading our tarot cards <laughs> I don't know I don't know how enriching for the listeners that would be but I would find it very interesting
4: yeah, I love it. That and that's a lot of how I funded my uh my travel was uh, reading tarot cards. Um it's, um, it's, it's a wonderful thing for a writer to be able to do because it's a space where this other person is just telling you all of their stories. And for a writer, I mean, God, can you imagine anything better if people just come and just spill their darkest secrets and tell you their fears and you know, their traumas and all this terrible stuff that's happening? How is that not amazing for writers? It's fantastic.
2: Well, now that we have covered a lot of ground, uh, I want to ask if you have any words of advice for our fellow world traveling listeners out there, people who maybe they just aspire to set out on a solo journey and might be nervous or scared or not be certain about what they're doing.
4: Um, I think the most important thing to remember for long-term travel, and I am a big advocate for planting yourself somewhere for a while. Like I think a month minimum, someplace is it. Like you, you have to stay for longer, or you're just going to be like hitting the surface. And so, for like a long-term travel, like if you go out for a couple months, the only thing to remember is that. You're going to hit every emotion and it's okay. It's okay to be lonely. It's okay to be scared. These things are fleeting. It's okay not to have a good time. It's okay to lose all of your money or, you know, fall down in public or, you know, you, it's important not to sort of judge the experience by its lowest points. You have to have the lowest points in order to have the highest points. So you go, you take care of yourself while you're out in whatever way you need to. You deal with the stuff as it comes and you don't sort of like grab on to anything negative. Just don't hold it. Just let it keep going. And, you know, don't panic. Just keep going day at a time. And if it's bad at that place, if it really is just terrible, just go to another place. Pick up your stuff, go to another place. London is crap, go to Paris, you know. Yeah.
3: Well, thank you so much to Jessica Crispin for coming on the show and talking about her work and her new book, The Dead Ladies Project, Exiles, Expats and Ex-Countries. And if you want to learn more about Jessa or the
2: project she's working on, you can go to jessacrispin.com. That'll point you to her e-literary magazine, Spolia. And you can also go to bookslut.com. And, of course, don't forget to go to your fine online or brick-and-mortar book retailers to get yourself a copy of her book.
3: And now, listeners, as always, we'd love to hear about your travel stories. Did Crispin's uh, book remind you of places that you'd been or authors or artists that you especially love? Let us know. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. I've got a letter here from Anna, which is appropriate to your conversation with Jessica Crispin because it takes place partially in Berlin and it's about our free the nipple episode. So she writes, I was just listening to your podcast about freeing the nipples and women topless in public. It was perfect timing because I had a really great experience with this over the weekend. I'm an American, but I've lived in Berlin for a few years. As you mentioned, East Germans are really comfortable going nude, mostly at lakes. When I first moved here, I really admired this, but I thought I could never do it myself. I used to have nightmares about that as a kid, like many kids I know. But last weekend, I was swimming at a lake with a girlfriend, and we saw many topless women, including some younger women, which is not quite as common. We decided to try it, although we were both a bit hesitant, but it was so much. Fun. It felt so liberating and also reinforced the sentiment of why shouldn't I be able to show my breasts in public? It really made me think about why I was uncomfortable being nude in public and how much the American culture of modesty had affected me. To feel comfortable, I reminded myself that nobody here cares if my boobs are out but this is not an easy mentality to change. Anyway, I'm so happy I tried it and encourage any women to, if they're in a place where they feel comfortable doing so. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Anna. And I can personally attest from my experience on topless beaches in Spain that, yes, it can be quite liberating to free your nipples in public. Just use sunscreen. Because boobs do burn very easily.
2: Well, I have a letter here from Caitlin. She says, as a woman who recently completed a plumbing apprenticeship, your episode on women in the trades was very exciting. I began the apprenticeship with the hopes of becoming a project manager. After completing the apprenticeship program, I've recently been promoted to a project coordinator position. I really enjoy my new position, but I've been thinking about how I can give back to the trades community. Your show has inspired me to start an employee group for women in the trades, as well as to work on encouraging women in the trades to move up in their career path. I spoke with the CFO of the company I work with, and he is very supportive of the program. I've been hesitant in the past to recommend the trades as a career path for women because it can be a difficult work environment for all the reasons you mentioned on the show. I would like to do my part to improve the work atmosphere for women in the trades and to bring women together to support each other. Thank you for your wonderful
3: show. And thank you for supporting other ladies in the trades, Caitlin. And thanks to everybody who's written into us, tweeted us, and Facebooked us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send us your emails. You can also find links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to learn more about Jessa Crispin and the Dead Ladies Project. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: What if I told you that UFOs, haunted houses, and even inexplicable magic tricks are all caused by the same creature? And what if I told you these powerful and ancient beings are meant to be feared? The Hidden Djinn, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Mankey's Grim and Mild explores the legends of these ancient and terrifying creatures. Join me, Rabia Chaudhary, as we step into the world of The Hidden jinn. Listen to The Hidden jinn on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality, at our inability to get basic things done, at the persistence of systemic racism? You're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point, but which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen
2: to podcasts.